You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast, the show where I talk to fanfiction writers about their work and the marvelous world of fanfiction. This show may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. The following paragraphs are from Chapter 8 of a fanfiction story titled Crossing of the Paths by today's guest fanfiction author, Triple M. A.J. I do not know the precise amount of total lives I have taken, because the first incident out of two was one where my method was indirect and indiscriminate. I was imprisoned by humans who intended to use me as a slave and harness my abilities to conquer and destroy their foes. They had created me, but they had not taught me anything of morality or the importance of protecting life. So when I used my powers to destroy their base of operations and escape, I did so with no regard to the collateral damage I might cause. In a fit of rage and a need for escape, I cast forth a great explosion of energy from myself, destroying the machinery they had been using to keep me prisoner and propelling myself upward to freedom. An untold number of them were killed in blast, and I never even bothered to look back and count their numbers. It was only many months after the fact that I learned the true horror of what I had done. I suppose one could argue that the heinous strain of the deed upon my conscience could be mitigated by the fact that I didn't know the implications of what I was doing, and the fact that I was doing so out of a sense of self-preservation in the face of their evil. But when I found myself put in the same situation a second time with another human slave driver, I should have known better. I should have controlled my anger and my fear so that I could find a non-violent way to escape the trap that this human had sprung upon me. But I repeated my past mistake and lost myself in my anger. And now his blood is added to that of the others on my hands. That is what brought me to this world of Hapalia. I came here to exile myself so that I could never take another life. I didn't expect to even survive my own exile, much less meet someone as utterly selfless and caring as Kalana. Mewtwo paused again, finding himself at loss for words for a brief moment. He looked up at the eyes of the Gerudo people who were watching him. They were absolutely rapt at attention and hanging off his every word. Some looked shocked or repulsed, but most seemed genuinely neutral or sympathetic. Now was the chance for a big grand finisher. He needed something snappy to wrap up his case. He didn't really have any powerful inspiration though, so he lowered his arms to his side humbly as he finished. So, there it is. My shame. Now all of you know it, and I will not blame you or hold it against you should you choose to side with your arbiter and have me cast out. It may ultimately be the most prudent decision you can make, but remember this when you cast your vote. When I trusted Kalana with this story, she in turn trusted me with her story about Ruru. It was that first mutual offering of trust that led her to defy Hadar's orders to throw me out and to follow me to the tower. It was that display of selflessness by Kalana that inspired me to stay here on this world after destroying the drain device to try and save Ruru when I could have simply returned to my own world immediately. If you can find it within yourselves to continue offering that trust back to me, then I will swear to do everything in my power to help you all. I never had any brothers or sisters back home on Earth, but I hope I can find some here.
To the north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world, greetings from the wild, arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Our special guest fanfiction author for today is Triple M.A.J. He's been writing fanfiction for a long time, but has been a member of AO3 since 2018. He has one Pokemon Legend of Zelda crossover story posted there, which is actually a rewrite of a fanfiction series that he's been working on for 20 years, people. The series was originally posted up on fanfiction.net, and we will talk more about that and explain that more during the interview, so don't you worry. Triple M.A.J. enjoys listening to music, watching movies, building desktop PCs, and video games. He loves curling up at home to marathon a good piece of media late at night. I love doing that, too. He enjoys sci-fi and fantasy stories, classic rock, hell yeah, and techno music. He also likes playing creative games based around building like Minecraft. Triple M.A.J., thank you so much for coming on the show today, man. Welcome. How you doing? Really good. Thanks for having me on. I've been looking forward to this for like ever since I've messaged you. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so excited too. This is awesome. We're going to have a great show today. So let's get started here. So the first thing that we always do at the beginning of all of the shows is we like to establish that fan fiction street cred, right? Question number one is always, when did you first discover fan fiction? Well, honestly, I actually stumbled onto writing it before I started reading it, because when I was a really, really young kid, I mostly had access to novels rather than, you know, the internet. My parents loved to give me fantasy, sci-fi, young adult novels. I also had a lot of video games when I was a kid. I had an NES and a Sega Genesis, and that means that once I finally got access to a computer... The first thing that, you know, after I got over the initial, you know, humorous novelty of writing out swear words because I was a little kid, I just started writing fanfic because that was what my brain was curious about. You know, I didn't know that it was called fanfic at the time. It was just, I want to write a story about my favorite game characters, Sonic and Mario, because those were the two that I played at the time, Sonic primarily because that was my first fandom. And, you know, I was really immersed in the Sonic versus Mario console war culture that you had when I was a little kid. And, you know, I never saved that particular story. It was just, you know, a Sonic meets Mario story, and it didn't have a plot structure or a title or beginning or end or anything like that. It was just, you know, kid me thinking, boy, how cool would it be if you, Mario and Sonic got to meet each other? You know, I never imagined that we would actually have games where this would happen, like the Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games. Boy, kid me, I would have lost my mind. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so cool, though, that you were doing that at such a young age. Do you remember how old you were when you started doing that? Oh, I'm, I forget the exact number, but I know I was an elementary school kid, so probably around seven or eight-ish years old. And, you know, I don't remember much of the detail of that first story that I wrote, but I do remember one line because it was a line that I was really proud of as a kid that stuck in my brain. Like, I wrote that. The line was Mario was being speechless at the sight of Sonic. He was like, what the heck is that? And Sonic was like, what's the matter? Never seen a blue hedgehog before? You're staring like I have mold growing all over my face. <laughs> I love that. You came up with that line at seven, eight years old? Yeah, I thought it was the funniest shit ever. <laughs> Damn, man. That's good, though. <laughs> That's good. That's so interesting to me that you were so young 
and you already had this concept of writing a story based on characters that you like. Do you ever feel like the stories that you read, like the novels that your parents were giving you, had any effect on your desire to produce your own content? Absolutely. I mean, there were two books, well, one book and one series of books specifically that really made a big impact. The Individual is Ender's Game because, you know, that game, like, it's one of the best young adult sci-fi novels I've ever read. And, you know, say what you will about the author and their problematic views, but boy, howdy, he was amazing at what he did. And he really knew his audience, like making a kid feel like they could put themselves in the middle of this grand epic adventure and be the star of it. I could absolutely identify with Ender at the part of that during that book. And that already made me admire writers as a kid. And then when I read Lord of the Rings, you know, I marathoned all three of them just in a row out, devoured those books. And, you know, I didn't initially plan to be a writer, but I definitely knew after reading these novels that I had a lot of respect for writers. And I thought that I could at least be a writer as a hobby for sure. Yeah. As a kid reading these iconic stories, and by the way, I agree with you that those two books and series are freaking amazing. Mm-hmm. I read Ender's Game when I was a kid and just fell in love with it. It was mm-hmm. so good. And then I read Lord of the Rings as a kid a thousand times because I just kept going back to the beginning after I've finished, you know, the last book and I'd go back and go, well, guess I'll read it again. So as a kid, having that experience, enjoying the immersiveness of fiction so much, I can understand how you would want to emulate that and maybe cause others to fall into that same immersive experience yourself with the Mm -hmm. things that you produce. Yeah. And, you know, I mentioned that I really loved video games at the time. And, you know, honestly, when I first played Zelda Ocarina of Time, that's what, you know, made me start to think, I want to be a game developer. And, you know, this ended up being what led me to, you know, wanting to start writing fanfic for its own thing, because I didn't initially know what fanfic was until I started using the internet. Ah, yes. (laughs) That basically happened once I went to middle school and we had computers with internet access there. And that was when I stumbled onto Shrine websites, like specifically devoted to individual characters or for individual fandoms. Like a big one was the Zelda Universe forums that I found when I was a kid. And those had a whole lot of like role playing as Zelda characters and people writing and posting and sharing their Zelda fanfics. That's how I actually discovered what fanfiction was at that point. I was like, oh, other people actually do this. It's got like a thing people do. It's not just me bullshitting about characters I like. Now, besides the wonderment of realizing, oh, my God, like other people are doing this, too. Were there any other thoughts or feelings that you had when you discovered that, geez, fan fiction is a thing? Well, I eventually transitioned from wanting to develop, you know, video games into wanting to write fanfic because, well, for the first reason primarily was because I realized I would have to write code to make video games. Like, I can't do that, especially not as a middle schooler kid. But also when I saw that, you know, people have been writing their own stories for games And I'm like, I can actually do this as just its own thing. I don't have to, you know, write stories to be a part of a game that I want to develop. I can write stories for its own sake and post it online and share it with people. And you know, get positive feedback and make friends. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you remember the days of the Shrine sites, you know. I think us older folks, (laughs) we remember that because when the internet first came out, that's all you had was these shrine sites that were going up on GeoCities and Angel Fire <laughs> and yep. all of these different places where people were just 
kind of posting them up and there was no centralized archive. Yeah, I had like a whole bookmark folder full of those sites for a long time. I'm kind of sad that so many of them have died and I've lost track of all of them. I can only remember like two or three of them nowadays. And they're only still around because they managed to get off of GeoCities before it died. Exactly. Yeah, I think most of the shrine sites that I was involved with have collapsed by this point, which is very sad. Although you may be able to find some of them on the Wayback Machine. But like I had my own shrine site back in the day, 1997, because I was really into a sci-fi show that was on Nickelodeon. So I had my own like little shrine site and it was so stupid, but I loved that thing. And it, it doesn't exist anymore. So sad. But, um, you know, it's just it's really cool that people would do that. Just post stuff up just for other people to enjoy. So it's really cool whenever I meet someone else who remembers what that was like. Yeah. And you know what's crazy is that well, the very first fic that I like had an intention to finish was a Zelda fan fic. It wasn't a crossover. It was just its own story. And it was actually based on a dream I had when I was a kid. What? Yeah, I, I'd been playing a lot of Ocarina of Time at the time. And, you know, that game is a hugely formative experience for me, both, you know, as a person and as a writer. And it made such a huge impact that I had a dream about, you know, what it would be like if Link was going through a dungeon filled with spiders, like tens of thousands of spiders just crawling all over the walls. And when I woke up after that, I was like, I want to write a story about it. But, you know, since I was initially operating under the idea that I was going to be a game developer, I sort of wrote it like it was a script for a game. You know, it was structured, Link goes through Dungeon Door. I described the room in painstaking detail. Link kills spiders, gets loot, opens door, repeat. So, I mean, the writing quality was very robotic in that sense, but I was proud of it at the time. I thought it was cool. And after, you know, I discovered that fanfic was a thing, I almost posted it online, but at one point I accidentally lost the file and it got deleted. Oh, no. You know, I'm sure that every single fanfiction writer out there has had some sort of experience with writing something and then losing it. You know, mm -hmm. the hard drive crashes, they lose the floppy disk. Floppy disks for all of you Gen Zers out there was something that we had before the memory sticks. And before cloud was a thing, we had something called floppy disks. And what were those other things? After floppy disks came... CDs? Yeah, something like that. You know, it's all a blur to me now, but <laughs> that's so cool. But yeah, I know a lot of us have had that experience of losing files, and it's so sad when that happens. Now, were there any fan fictions that helped inspire you to start writing seriously? And if so, what were those like? Oh, there were two of them, actually. One of them was more serious. One of them was more of a comedy. I'll start with the serious one. So the first fic was a Zelda fic called Legend of Link Lucky Number 13 by a writer called Mr. E. But I actually initially found it on fanfiction.net by simply searching for lemon fics of various different ships that I liked at the time. The one that I was searching for in particular was a Link Nibiru ship, since I found the Gerudos in Ocarina of Time really super interesting. The funny part is that I only clicked the fic because I misread the description of it. I thought it was said just another Link Nibiru lemon fic. I was like, okay, this will be just a quick bite. This will be interesting. But it actually said not just another Link Nibiru fic. I completely missed the not. And it was really, really fleshed out, really interesting had a really cool plot at the time. The story was about Link having been in love with Zelda, but having his heart broken by her and falling in love with Nibiru instead. Oh, how interesting. And he ended up joining up with the Gerudos in that story. 
And, you know, I had already had a teenage boy crush on Nibiru at the time, so that whole fic just was absolutely crack cocaine for my brain. And, you know, nowadays I can recognize that the story has a couple of problematic elements when it comes to romance, but it wasn't really the romance by itself that really made the deepest mark on me when I read that story. It was the way that the author spent time just fleshing out the entire culture of the Gerudos beyond what was in the game. He made a whole bunch of different Gerudo OCs that felt interesting and real to me at the time. And, you know, that's what inspired me when I got to writing my own series to flesh out the Gerudos as well. I wanted to write something about the Gerudos just like Mr. E had done, but I wanted to do it with my own twist and, and with a different protagonist than Link. Ah, so it sounds like he was doing a lot of world building in his story, right? Yeah. And I noticed that you did a lot of that with your story as well. And of course, we'll, you know, go into your story and your project in a bit here. But um, you'll have to forgive me because I am not really familiar with Legend of Zelda. This was kind of my first exposure to that. And I was fascinated by the fact that the Gerudos are a matriarchal society. It's very different than most of the things that you see in media. And I was like, oh, my God, this is totally matriarchal. How interesting. I love this. Exactly. That's what I was trying to phrase earlier. I loved the way they portrayed that matriarchal society. And I wanted to give it my own spin. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely worth diving into. So I can totally see how that would be appealing to you. Were there any other stories besides that one by Mr. E that you really liked and that inspired you or affected your own writing projects? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mentioned there was a second one. It was a comedy fanfic. It was called, get this, Adventures in Randomness with Zelda and Company. Uh, (laughs) I'd click on that. (laughs) Uh, It was by the author Deadeye Dave. Do you remember back in the early 2000s where there was that big meme of random humor where people would just be shouting, Sporks! Penguins of Doom! Cheese! Another complete non-sequiturs? Yes, that was a thing. (laughs) This fic was the embodiment of that. It was all that. Middle schooler me thought that was piss your pants hilarious. (laughs) And so much so that, you know, several years after I initially discovered that fic, I actually downloaded, you know, a free recording program, Audacity, and just recorded myself reading it aloud so I'd have my own private audiobook version of it to listen to on an iPod. Nice, nice. It's always fun to me when you come across fics that seem to embody some sort of cultural meme or, you know, like the cultural experience of that decade. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There are fics all over the place and all different kinds of fandoms that do that. And it's always so much fun because they end up being kind of iconic. Absolutely. And I mean, there were a couple of problematic jokes in that series. Certainly, I can go back and reread it and definitely critique it. But There's a lot of positive memories tied to it, too, because I can remember sharing this with my sibling, like reading it out loud to them, and the two of us just laughing our asses off, practically (laughs) rolling on the floor. Oh, what a good memory, though. When I started writing my fix, they were the first person that I shared it with. I would just give them a chapter to read and go, okay, how bad is it? (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. So you were sharing, in a sense, what you were doing with people in in real life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I didn't really share it that much with my parents, not because I didn't want to. They weren't immersed in the same video game culture as my sibling and I both were. And my sibling and I both played through Ocarina of Time, and we both loved the shit out of that game. So I'm like, I'm going to write a Zelda fanfic. What do you think? And they were like, hell yeah, hook me up. 
And every time I post a chapter back then, even to this day, I will share it with them. And, you know, they are, they're a writer in their own regard now. They write their own stories and they're a really good writer. So I really do trust their opinions whenever I write some stuff. Oh, so it sounds like they are a wonderful beta and someone to really bounce ideas off of and get some Absolutely. good ideas flowing that way, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't ask them to go through individually and pick apart like plot points because they're busy, they have their own life and their own problems to deal with, and I don't want to be a burden, but I want to share my universe with them. Oh, and that's so wonderful that you have someone, especially someone in your family. I have come across many writers here on the show who have siblings in their real life that they share their projects with. And I just always think that's so wonderful when siblings can connect on that level over fan fiction. That's wonderful. Oh, yeah. And can I share with you one of my favorite moments that I had with them? Of course. My series is a trilogy. And when I was writing the second book in the trilogy, by that point, everything is original characters. And I had an original character named Tannis. And Tannis, I wrote him to be very much a lovable, like kind, generous person. And he had a lot of misfortunes happen to him over the course of the story. And once I got to the third book, I knew I wanted to kill him. And when I wrote the chapter where he died, I shared the chapter with my sibling. And my sibling, well, I, I actually read it out loud to them. And as I read them, they just got this dead, silent look over their face, like this serious look. And when I finished reading it out loud to them, they just walked out of the room <laughs> and shut the door. And they got back to me later and they were basically saying, I knew that was coming, but you're a bastard. Also, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> you traumatized them. <laughs> and what writer doesn't love making people feel something like that? Yes, yes. You know, even if it's shocking, right? Yeah. Just I the fact that you made them react that way. Mm -hmm. probably made you feel really good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they told me they knew it was coming. Tannis, his role in the story was over. But, you know, I wanted to get just a little bit more drama out of that and give him a really dramatic ending that would give some real sad feels. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. That's awesome. I love that story. Now, I know we were talking, we've been talking back and forth for a couple weeks now, mm -hmm. and I understand that you did post fanfictions to fanfiction.net. Your original version of this fanfiction series that we're talking about today still exists there on mm -hmm. fanfiction.net, but I also understand that you had posted some works to fanfiction.net even before that series during fanfiction.net's purge years which means that some of your fics were taken down. A lot of our listeners are either too young to remember the fanfiction.net purge or just weren't aware that it was happening at the time that it happened. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, what happened? Absolutely. And, you know, this does circle back with context to one of the uh, fics I talked about earlier. Adventures in Randomness with Zelda and Company, I mentioned. I loved that fic, and it inspired me to start writing, in a way, humor fics of my own. Back around the time when I had first settled into writing on fanfiction.net, I was also making a Pokemon-based sprite comic, and it was called Pokemon in Space, and I originally posted it on DeviantArt. It was pretty low-quality humor comic. It basically starred a self-insert of myself as best friends with a team of legendary Pokemon, and we were the crew of a starship. But DeviantArt took the comic down because, quote-unquote, borrowing sprites from video games constituted art theft, according to oh. the site's terms of service. 
So they nuked the whole thing. I was really frustrated by this, and I decided that to get around this, I was just going to adopt the comic into a fanfic instead. And since I was heavily inspired by Adventures in Randomness with Zelda and Company, I wanted to make it in the style of that story. Adventures in Randomness was a script fic, so I naturally also went into script fic. But the problem was, just around the time that I had uploaded this script fic of, you know, Pokemon in Space, the fanfiction.net admins decided they wanted to outlaw all script fics. If I remember correctly, they were doing it under some flimsy justification that they wanted to remove low-quality, quote-unquote, works from the site. I think they were kind of sick of the stigma of their site in the community, and they wanted to try and shake it off by, you know, getting rid of the chaff or something like that. But it just came off as very ham-fisted and narrow-sighted, but... Needless to say, I didn't realize that Strip Fix had been outlawed until my own one got deleted for violating that rule. <laughs> in fact, you know, my lack of awareness of the rule had even led me to advertise in the description that it was a script fic, making it all the easier for the FFNet admins to find and remove it. Oh, like putting a bullseye target on it or something, right? <laughs> yep. And the sad thing is I'd eventually ended up losing that one too when I lost my uh, computer. <laughs> now, I'm curious... Did they reach out to you at all, the admins, and say, hey, your work violates our terms of service, we're going to take it down? Or did they just do it and you found out because it wasn't there anymore? Nope, they just nuked it. I didn't know until it was already on. Oh, my God. So there was no explanation, no telling you beforehand, just you woke up one day and it wasn't there. Well, they, they sent me a message after deleting it saying that script fix were against the rules, but they didn't preemptively warn me, that's for sure. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, like it's crazy to me that they would just go crazy on the site and just nuke thousands of people's stories, you know, without any <laughs> yeah. warning, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, honestly, if I remember right, there were a lot of cringy jokes in that story. So retrospectively, I'm not super sad that it's gone from the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's it's kind of one of those things that's important to know, I think, about fandom history is that back in the early days before AO3 was a thing, there were these other archive sites that would just make random decisions oh, yeah. about what they wanted and what they didn't want. And sometimes they would just go through and purge stuff. And it was a really crazy time. Yeah. To get off on a tangent on that specifically, you remember that story that I told you about Legend of Link Lucky number 13, because it was a lemon fic. It also got deleted in the purge too. I was wondering about that because it was a lemon fic. I'm sure it got targeted as well. Yeah. It ended up having to migrate over to Media Miner instead. And that's where it is to this day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's it's sad to me that so many works got nuked and taken down. And, yeah. and for some of these writers, that was the only copy they had. Yeah, I mean, I ended up having, you know, not knowing where to find Legend of Link for like a decade. And it was like sitting in the back of my brain going, whatever happened to that fic that I really liked? It's gone. I can't find it. And I would go and do a cursory Google search and I wouldn't find it anywhere. And only once like AO3 was around... I heard someone mention, you know, the alternative site Media Miner, and I checked there, and whoop, there it is. <laughs> well, thank God. It got posted back up somewhere, right? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> now, circling back a little bit to Pokemon fandom, because the work that we're talking about today with your series, it is Pokemon crossover with Legend of Zelda. So how did you get into the Pokemon fandom, and what are some of the things that you like about that? 
It definitely started when my parents bought me my very first Game Boy and a copy of Pokemon Red version. And, you know, that was far back enough in the past that most of the specific details are pretty hazy and forgotten. My memory is not the best, but I certainly can remember that it was around the same time that I had had surgery on both of my knees. Because I had a specific problem with my knees that caused them to be knock-kneed when I walked. And there was a surgery that would correct it over the course of a year. And I can remember after the first surgery, just laying in the hospital bed, recovering in this just nasty pain. I couldn't barely even walk. And my parents bring me this Game Boy Color and a few games to help me cope with the experience and pass the time. And it was Dr. Mario, Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening, and Pokemon Red version. And Dr. Mario didn't really absorb me for long, because, you know, it's a simple, like, Tetris sort of game. But, you know, the latter two were absolutely enrapturing experiences to kid me. I mean... You have these tiny, tiny little cartridges that hold like one megabyte of data, and there were whole worlds crammed onto these things, and like what felt at the time sprawling adventures with twists and turns. And, you know, I wasn't able to go anywhere. I didn't have anything else to do, so I buried myself into those. And Pokemon itself, you know, I fell for that one because of several factors. Uh, the huge variety of Pokemon with their colorful and appealing designs. You know, the idea of striking out into the world alone and adventuring through the wilderness as a kid, going through cities with a loving Pokemon buddy at your side. It was like that exact sort of journey that I needed to escape the reality of that hospital bed and all the pain I was in. And it went on to be an escape from other problems in my life at the time, too. So honestly, there was I couldn't see any other way I would have avoided it at that time. <laughs> so you got into the game before you watched the television series? Yes. I played the game like four times before I watched the anime. The anime, I didn't really like that much until the first Pokemon movie, which uh, Mewtwo Strikes Back. And boy, howdy, that film, that hit my kid brain like a freight train. That was the final ingredient that pushed me over from being a Pokemon fan to a Pokemon fanatic. And that's also what caused me to start writing the series. Oh, that's awesome. My little brother really loved Pokemon, so I remember watching a lot of Pokemon with him and stuff because that's what he liked. But I don't consider myself someone who knows a lot about Pokemon canon, so you'll have to forgive me if I get any facts wrong, canonically speaking, here in this interview. Perfectly because, fine. Uh, yeah, my, my knowledge is just not there, but I will say that your series was my first introduction to, to Mewtwo. I had no idea that that Pokemon existed, and I was enthralled by this Pokemon because he seems like he has like a, a dark past and experiences that maybe are a little bit different than the other Pokemon around him. Oh, absolutely. And so it was really interesting learning about him as a character. And of course, he's the star of your ambitious fan fiction writing project. So I am curious why you chose to focus on the Mewtwo character specifically. What do you find most interesting about him? And do you see any parts of Mewtwo in yourself? And that's a very good question. And I'm going to have to go into detail in order to do it justice because it's super easy to just, you know, jokingly say, hell yeah, sign me up for godlike psychic powers. <laughs> like, let me give you some context to this one. I'm on the autism spectrum and that was one of the biggest contributing factors to why I was viciously and continuously bullied when I was a kid, basically for the entire duration of middle school when I was young. I don't really need to go into the specific details of the stuff they did to me, 
But I will say that the result of that was that I felt very isolated and ostracized by basically all of my peers at the time. Like I had one really good friend named Chris who was a total lifesaver. But, you know, he was one person among basically hundreds of kids who were doing terrible stuff. And the movie Mewtwo Strikes Back came out during this time. And I immediately related to him because he was a highly isolated social outcast in his story as well. He viewed his origins as a clone as being something that made him unnatural and unable to live alongside normal people or Pokemon. And overdramatic as this seems now, socially ostracized kid me highly related to how isolated Mewtwo felt during that movie. And, you know, the psychic powers were legitimately appealed too, because I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> but Kid Me didn't, really didn't want them for violent purposes. I actually had a lot of escapist fantasies about how I would love to use the power of telekinetic flight to just fly away from my classroom and escape the bullies. Or, as another example, at the end of the movie, Mewtwo uses his psychic powers to make everyone forget about his existence so he can make good on his escape. And Kid Me fantasized so much about doing that to my classmates to, to escape them as well. Like, I just wanted everyone in school to forget I existed. Oh, yeah. And I can absolutely see how his story would be so relatable to a kid who's just trying to survive day to day in the classroom and having all of these things happen to you. And then you see this character in media who is also kind of a loner and, like you said, isolated and things that he's dealing with and all these challenges. and. It is so fascinating to see how the Mewtwo character reacts to all of those things happening to him, the choices that he makes, and I think also his growth as a character. I had to ask my brother about this a little bit because he knows more about the Mewtwo storyline than I do in canon. And I was like, is there a lot of growth in canon? Because there was a lot of growth in your story as you presented him to us as a character. And and so I had to ask him, like, does that fit with canon? Is that what really happened? And he pulled up a YouTube video for me and he sat me down one day and made me watch some <laughs> clips during my lunch break at work. And he's like, yes, look at this. See? Character growth. It's right there. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. That's kind of what prompted that question because I thought I can absolutely see how tons of people all over the world would relate to this specific character for lots of different valid reasons. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate you sharing your real life experiences on that and being vulnerable with us and sharing that with us. Thank you. And, you know, I got to say, I want to give your brother a high five because hell yeah, I would have done that too. I would have sat you down and showed you that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did. He showed me clips from the first movie and then he's like, oh, well, if you like that, there's a second one. And I was like, what? <laughs> so then he sat me down and we pulled up clips from that and it was just really neat. It was, I didn't even know what he looked like until I saw those clips. And then I was like, oh, cool. That's great. And you know what's crazy is that the original version of the movie in Japan is actually different than the version that we got here in the States. Is it really? Yeah, the four kids, when they localized it for the American audience, believed that Mewtwo's story was already too dark for American kid audiences. So they actually cut out a significant like 10 or 15 minutes of his origin story for the American release. They eventually released it as a DVD extra for the DVD release of the second movie, Mewtwo Returns. And it is gut-wrenchingly sad. Like, if you watch it, you will see that, yeah, that's a little dark for kids, but it adds way more to his story because you learn that he met... This human girl named I, or Amber in the American version, 
who was also being cloned by her scientist father because I, or Amber, had died in a car accident and her father couldn't cope with the loss of her death and he wanted to bring her back, but he couldn't get the funding to design cloning technology to do it until he agreed to sign on to Team Rocket to get the funds to clone them the most powerful Pokemon. Oh my god. And you get this really dark, sad story about how Professor Fuji, this scientist, can't cope with the loss of his dead daughter. And then you see this child Mewtwo coming into psychic contact with the clone of Amber in the tank next to him. And she's like befriending him. And they're two little kids. And then the cloning technology fails and he has to watch her die in front of him. And I'm guessing that was cut out of the American version as well. (laughs) All of that was cut out. And it's just the most amazing add-on to the story. I mean, the American version of the movie paints Mewtwo as just a black and white villain who is driven by, you know, this feeling of being an outcast and turning that to evil. But you get the actual backstory of him from the uncut version of his origins. And he is a much more gray character with really sad, tragic origins. And that absorbed me like crazy. And I knew I wanted to incorporate that into my stories, too. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's kind of a tragedy that they would cut that out of the American version as well, just in the sense that they're cutting out the backstory of the scientist. And I'm sure that, you know, in the American version, maybe we just see the scientist as this, like, awful supervillain and oh my god how dare you you know do all this stuff but when you understand the backstory that he was really doing all of these things out of love it doesn't excuse what he did right Mm -hmm. but it does give you that extra element as far as his motivations and where he was coming from so that's kind of a tragedy that i would cut that out oh you know what's really funny they actually pretty much cut the scientist out entirely. I don't even think we saw him at all. We just see the Team Rocket people who funded his operation, and that's it. Oh, so he doesn't even make an appearance in the American version. At least not, like, in nearly as long. I mean, I've forgotten some of it because it's been a long time since I've sat down to rewatch it, but I think you basically see him pop up once or twice, and that's just it. Oh, God. Well, that's extra tragedy then, because, like, I love the movies where... Yes, there's like a supervillain in it, but when we can understand the human motivations for why they do what they do, like, I don't know why, but that just, I am so fascinated by that and attracted to stories like that. So totally. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the fun thing about fan fiction, right? Is we can pull those elements back in and make them part of the stories and really kind of expand and go into those human elements. Yeah, I mean, the first movie is just all the story of Mewtwo learning, you know, right from wrong and learning the complexity of the moral, you know, problems with cloning and his origins. And that was compelling on its own right, even without the whole angle of me feeling isolated and identifying with him. That's one of the things, not to skip ahead or anything, but that's one of the things that I really loved about your story is you could really see that evolution in the Mewtwo character in your story, because as he starts connecting, I think, with all of these different societies and cultures outside of his own, and he starts connecting with all of these different beings and entities, you can kind of see that progression in him. Like you said, that moral journey, right? Mm -hmm. Where he starts to kind of go inward and question his own thoughts and his own motivations and (laughs) his own belief system. 
in other words, which I thought was just a fascinating journey. So it's almost like in your story, he's having an external journey because, of course, he's adventuring in all of these different exotic worlds, but he's also having a very internal odyssey. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I wanted to give him a similar feeling of progression as to the movies, just stretch it out more. Yeah, absolutely. You did a great job. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So now I am curious, with this project being a crossover, where did you get the idea to combine elements of Pokemon and Legend of Zelda into one story? Well, honestly, to be perfectly honest, pure fandom obsession and timing, because I really got into both fandoms basically at the exact same time. Both Ocarina of Time and, you know, Mewtwo and Pokemon came out at roughly the same exact set of years. And, you know, I discovered the Legend of Link fanfic that I mentioned earlier roughly around the same time that I watched the Mewtwo Strikes Back movie in the theaters. And I wanted to make a story about the Gerudos, just like Mr. E had done. And I wanted to write a story where Mewtwo was the protagonist, and those two just dovetailed together. I didn't really have a vision of how the fic would play out after that happened. I just started out with the basic concept of taking Mewtwo to Hyrule to meet the Gerudos and just ran with it. I didn't even have plans for the main villain of the story or a central conflict. I just figured I'd feel it out as I went. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think that they do go so well together with different elements that you can pick and choose from and kind of squish them together for crossover purposes and things like that. And of course, having Mewtwo as a you know central protagonist in the story because he is more of an evolved entity and has thought processes and all of these different things, I think it makes it a really compelling journey for the reader as well to see that journey from his viewpoint through his eyes. Thank you. You're welcome. So the name of your series is called The Traveler's Trilogy. Mm -hmm. It's really long. Yeah, it is. So if you had to describe that for people who have never read it, if you had to describe it in two minutes, how would you describe that particular story? And also what inspired you to tell this particular story? For the entire trilogy as a whole, it's meant to be a story about the entire, well, it didn't start out this way, but it became this way. The story of the entire collected history of the Mewtwo species, starting with the original Mewtwo after the end of the movie Mewtwo Returns and going all the way to his descendants, building an entire culture and society. I really love dense lore and world building. It's my cocaine, practically. And the idea of writing a complete history of a species and culture is immensely appealing, despite the daunting nature of the project's scope. And if I had to summarize just the first book, Crossing of the Paths, it's basically Mewtwo's personal version of the hero's journey story or specifically about how he conquers his own inner darkness and feelings of alienation from people, but also with lots and lots of magic, lasers, time travel, drama, and post-apocalyptic themes, because it's fun. <laughs> yes, I absolutely saw that hero's journey theme in that story. And aside from specific inspirations that I had already mentioned, you know, other movies and TV shows and video games were just another big source of indirect inspiration, like I love big, bombastic, high fantasy or science fiction stories and movies. Like, I think the glitz and glamour of seeing a larger-than-life story on the big silver screen in a theater always made me want to be the one to write a story like that that could be shown in a theater. Even though I knew fanfic, you know, you can't actually, you know, turn your fanfic into a commercial movie. I wanted to write something like that that felt like it had that big adventure and bombastic feeling to it. Yeah. 
And you can see that in the scope of your story, how it spans all of these different decades. And don't you go into Mewtwo's grandchildren at some point in the series and stuff like that? So the span and the depth of this story is just fantastic. Yeah, like book two is specifically written around Mewtwo's son, Tannis, who I mentioned earlier. He's the protagonist of that story. Mewtwo created him with the same cloning technology that he used to make clones during the first movie. And that whole book is just the story of Tannis's own hero's journey. And then book three is about the four sons that Tannis has and how they basically decide that we don't want our species to just end with us. We want to use cloning technology to build an entire culture. Now, when you first began writing this project back in the early 2000s, did you know starting this project that you wanted to emulate the hero's journey in your writing? Or did that just kind of come up organically later? Honestly, it was perfectly organic. I mean, I think I mentioned already that I was definitely one of the pantsers, as everyone puts it. All I started with was just the idea of crossing these two elements over initially. And as I wrote and as my brain generated ideas, more just spontaneously came out. One of the things that I think is so fascinating about this project of yours is just the span of time that you've devoted to this. I think I mentioned earlier in the interview that you began writing it 20 years ago. You started posting it back in the early 2000s on fanfiction.net, and then you eventually decided to do a rewrite. You're slowly posting that up onto AO3, but just the amount of time that you devoted to this is amazing. Can you tell us what your writing process looked like the first time around on the first version that you posted to FFN? Absolutely. I mean, I mentioned that I'm definitely a pantser, and I also mentioned that I didn't have plans for the villain or the main central story arc, and there's a couple of reasons for that, actually. The first one comes from the fact that I spent a lot of my time using the process of writing itself as a literal escape from my bullying at school. I went to school at a Montessori school, which is where you spend all of your time in the same room with the same class of kids for all your core subject lessons, and you only really get to change rooms for a select few electives. This meant that I was trapped in the same room with all my bullies for basically the entire day with only one or two breaks. If there was even a slight moment where the teacher wasn't paying attention, they would find ways to torment me, like throwing spitballs at me or kicking me. Our classroom, however, had a, a couple of computers for the students to use, and those were located up near the teacher's desk. And we were only technically allowed to use them once all of our lessons and homework were done. Now, since the computers were close to the teacher, the bullies couldn't harass me as long as I was sitting at the computer next to the teacher. So I would rush through all my lessons and homework really fast, and then I would fill my time immersing myself in writing at the computer to get away from the bullies, and I would be sitting there for hours trying to write, regardless of whether I had a plan or not. It was fun. It certainly kept me safe. But sometimes I had to find ways to fill that time without any direct inspiration, so I had to improvise. Hence the pantsers. <laughs> ah, that makes so much sense, though, that you were just kind of sitting down at that computer and just kind of writing whatever came out. Yep, and the other big reason is related to music. One of the things that inspired me to write is that my parents taught me very early on to visualize stories whenever I listened to music. And that method was what powered me to create individual disparate scenes in my head. They would basically play a song for me from like some classic rock album, and they would sit me down, have me close my eyes, and ask you, what do you see while you're listening to this? And initially, I wouldn't see anything. 
but they played for me this album called um, Pink World by a music group called Planet P Project. And the story about that was basically a rock opera with a story about this seven-year-old super-powered kid who takes over the world with psychic powers. And the concept of a rock opera, a whole album that could tell a story just in the lyrics, just lit this fire in my brain where I could start seeing stories in any music I listened to. And that stuck with me for the rest of my entire life. And I adopted that directly into my writing process. So it's a lot of fun. I could sit down and listen to a song and come up with a really intense and awesome choreographed battle scene in my head. But the downside is that since these were all just unrelated scenes that came out of songs spontaneously without of any sort of planning, there wouldn't really be any actual storyline linking them together. Like one song could inspire a slow, emotional, heartfelt scene with one character pouring out their heart to another, or another song would give me the idea for a badass Matrix-style car chase. But then actually trying to figure out how to take these scenes and fit them into a coherent and consistent plot is a little challenging. <laughs> I can see how that would happen. But what a beautiful method that you used to write it the first time around. I love it. You're the first person that I've ever talked to who says that they incorporated musical daydreaming as part of their writing process. I think that's gorgeous. It works really well also because I have so much time when I spend time listening to music, like when I'm in the car driving to work. Or when I was a kid, the family would go on vacation road trips and we would put on music and I would sit there and pass the time while driving on the road trip making up new ideas. So that was a big, big step on that, inspiring me to write the stories. Oh, I love that. Now, you mentioned that the problem with that method is that while you had these fantastic scenes written out inspired by some of these songs that you would listen to, it also did create plot holes, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. Is that generally what inspired you to decide to rewrite the series? That is one of the big, big reasons. Yeah. I mean, one of the ways that I inspire myself to continue writing on a story that I've already got a start on is that I'll go back and reread previous chapters in the story. And oftentimes, if I go through two or three chapters, my brain will get immersed into the story, and then I'll start getting ideas to continue. And when I started to go back and reread older chapters, I started to realize that my older writing was no longer really keeping up to my current level of standards, and I knew I had to at least edit it a little at the very least. Like, it didn't really happen until I was neck deep into the third book in the trilogy, which was a story I was working on during college and majoring in English. And taking literature courses at the time exposed me to a much wider variety of literary styles, you know. Even if I utterly hated some of the stuff I had to read for my classes, it definitely helped to sharpen my skills and broaden my understanding of the craft. And so between being exposed to different literary authors and just going back and reviewing your past writing projects and things like that, that's kind of what got you into that idea that, hey, maybe I should rewrite this. Yeah, yeah. And initially, I didn't actually intend to fully scrap everything that I had written. I started out just doing like grammar and spelling edits and then only occasionally deleting one or two paragraphs to rewrite when it was egregious. But I got about all nearly all the way to through to the end of Desert Wind and book one of Crossing of the Paths 
making a sort of edition 1.5, if you will, with all these fixes, when I started to notice that I wanted to edit more. Like, when I posted the first edition of this fic to fanfiction.net, I actually didn't really edit it that much at all. I solely relied on Microsoft Word's spell checker to catch all the errors. I'd do a full pass with the spell checker and call it good and upload it. And, you know, I knew this wouldn't catch all the contextual errors, you know, something that's grammatically correct, but a poor sentence. And I was just banking on there being very few of those. Well, needless to say, there were a lot of those. And, you know, the further along I got into the editing for version 1.5, I found myself deleting and rewriting more and more whole paragraphs just to fix more and more stilted and awkward sentences that hadn't been caught by the grammar checker. And, you know, by the time I got to the, you know, the climactic final battle scene at the end of Desert Wind, I was deleting and rewriting nearly everything. By the time I got to that point, I was going back and rereading the beginnings of version 1.5 to get myself into mind of editing more, and I would be finding more stuff that I wanted to delete that I had already edited for version 1.5. And it almost felt like I was being imprisoned in an endless Mobius strip of editing and rewriting and looping back around and re-editing and rewriting the same content over and over until I finally said, you know what, enough is enough. I'm going to completely erase it and start from scratch. <laughs> oh, no, I can totally see how that process led you to that decision. Absolutely. So I'm really curious to ask about your rewriting process. And the reason that I say that is because you and I both have experience on the fanfiction Reddit page. Yes. So I'm sure that you've seen tons of these posts there before, but a lot of writers will go on there and they'll post their intention to rewrite an older fanfiction or an older series or what have you. Mm -hmm. And you see a lot of these writers bemoaning this decision to rewrite something because rewriting something, especially over, you know, with you, it's like this 20 years of working on it and rewriting it and all that. That's a very challenging process. Mm -hmm. And a lot of writers on Reddit express frustration over that because they, they feel like they get stuck in the rewrite process. What can you tell us about your rewrite process and what have you learned from that? There's definitely a couple things I could go over, certainly. I mean, I think one of the hardest parts for me personally was when I was rereading some of the earliest parts that I wrote as a kid, now going through it with an adult's perspective. There were a few parts in the first edition where I had me to write a poem or two, and adult me reads that through an adult lens, and I just you want to implode with cringe. I'm like, oh God, that's so bad. I posted this publicly. So, <laughs> you know, just getting over that feeling of, oh God, why did I write and post this? I'm terrible is definitely the hardest part of editing for me. I think anyone who's gone and written poetry as a kid and then gone back to reread it can relate to this feeling. And I think for the record, I definitely don't intend to put an ounce of poetry into the second edition. But there's nothing wrong with recognizing that you're better at prose than poetry and deciding to play to your own strengths instead. <laughs> but learning to forgive me, young me, for not being as good a writer as current me has been the hardest part. And I still run into that even today because I will occasionally go back to the first edition to make sure I don't forget plot points from it or to grab some of the good bits to save. And, you know, when I started, I would do this and I would cringe until my face imploded. I, then I'd get discouraged and quit trying for the rest of the day. 
And, you know, that is another reason why I decided to quit, you know, and write over from scratch instead of editing it. But I eventually learned to just view that feeling as being direct evidence that I have been improving as a writer. I had to teach myself to gracefully accept my past mistakes and to treat those feelings as proof that I'm getting better and not stagnating. And it's difficult because you have to remind yourself of that constantly every time the feeling comes up, because the feeling never goes away. But you can eventually reverse that and turn it into fuel to power your desire to edit more, because you know you're getting better. You know you can do better. You just have to fight through that feeling. I love your answer to that question. I absolutely love that. You know, that process that you're describing is a very Eastern way of thinking. In Buddhism, they talk a lot about simply observing the thoughts and feelings that come up for us, right? Yeah. And instead of reacting to them or incorporating them into our belief system, we can simply sit with those thoughts and feelings and observe them and then maybe have a dialogue with them a little bit and say, is this really true, what I'm feeling and thinking, or are these just passing thoughts and feelings that I can gently rebuff and, and say, no, you know, actually, because I love what you say about how it's proof for you that you are improving, that you've done great work in learning how to construct sentences better and learning how to tell stories better. So I think that that's such a wonderful, beautiful, healthy way of going about that, because absolutely, I think every writer out there can relate to that on some level, that when we go back and read our old stuff, it's like cringe city, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And I mean, this is the primary reason why I leave the first edition up on fanfiction.net. I always have the urge to go back and take it down, like, especially when I reread the poetry that's in it. My inner cringe senses are like, kill it. But I'm like, no, I have to leave it up to prove to myself where I've been and where I am now. And also just because I don't want to fall into the trap of making anyone who liked the first edition feel bad about it. Like, you've heard all of the drama around how George Lucas has tried to destroy the first, you know, editions of Star Wars. Like, he tries to get rid of the original cuts based around, you know, who fired first, Han Solo or Greedo, for example. And people get so upset about that. And when I look back at, you know, the idea of trying to erase an old version of what I wrote, I immediately think, I don't want to cause, you know, anyone who read my old stories and liked them to feel like they were wrong for writing them. Like, there's flaws in them. God, yeah, there's flaws. Plenty. But there's still nuggets of good in it. And I genuinely appreciate everyone who reads it and finds some good in it, even if the good is kind of buried in a pile of flaws. So I want to leave that there and let it be not only a testament to my progress, but to let it be valid for fans who liked it before. Oh, I love that. That's such a compassionate decision. You know, it's compassionate for you. And it's compassionate for the fans and readers who love the first iteration of Crossing of the Path. So I really appreciate you saying those things, that it's important for us to have compassion for ourselves and our own journeys in writing. And it's also really great to be able to have that compassion for our readers and fans as well. So I love that. Thank you. 
One of the things that I loved about comparing the two versions myself, because I did, I started with your fanfiction.net version first, and then I jumped in to the AO3 rewrite version so that I could kind of compare the two and see. And I noticed, you know, so many things that were wonderful. Both versions are amazing, but you can definitely see that your second, more current rewrote version has the sharper writing style. It's more descriptive. And it's just emotionally rich. Like you really get a good sense of what's going on internally with Mewtwo, which I love that. It's amazing. I feel like a lot of fan fiction writers are constantly seeking to improve their writing in these ways, but have a really hard time figuring out how to do that because sometimes learning how to do that can be very daunting. And a lot of us don't even know where to start with that. What insights can you give us about how, like, what are some things people can do to improve their writing styles that way? What are some of the specific things that you did to practice and improve? First of all, thank you for saying all those nice things. I'm really flattered and happy to hear you enjoyed the stories, even with all the flaws in the first edition. I'm super happy you would read both of them and compare them like that. So thank you. As far as, you know, advice for improving, there's a lot of them. I mean, of course, I definitely have to mirror the usual ones that everyone gives you because they're true. You have to keep writing. You have to write all the time, or at least a little bit every day to keep yourself sharp. And read more stories by a wide variety of authors, because it will broaden your scope. Expose yourself to even the styles you hate. It'll help you learn more ways to write. But I can also definitely give some specific tips that helped me. For one thing, you don't need to limit your media intake to just the written word. You can broaden your palette by watching movies and TV shows and watch different genres or play video games or all sorts of media. I mean, novel writing and screenplay writing may be fundamentally different in a lot of ways, but they both aim for the same core goal, and that's to tell a good story. And when you watch a movie or a TV show, you can try to filter it through a critical lens in order to critique the plot and find reasons why that plot is really good. For example, uh, recently I've become a huge fan of the Marvel films on the MCU as a whole, and I've spent a lot of time watching people on YouTube, you know, various critics dissecting and analyzing it and criticizing those films, and that stuff's very mentally stimulating. I'll spend time watching criticism of movies that I really disliked, and try to figure out ways to make them better, or even analyzing problems with the films that I did like. For example, I learned to view media, a lot of different media, through one specific lens of why wouldn't a competent character use all of their abilities and resources at their disposal to the best of their ability to achieve their goals? For example, if a character has the ability to teleport, and if they're being chased, why don't they just teleport out? And if you go through a movie and apply that lens to how you criticize it. Not only is it fun because you're mentally engaging with the movie in a way that I find very personally stimulating, but you're developing your own ability to criticize your own work using that same lens. I've learned to dislike that trope of characters making dumb mistakes out of character purely for the purpose of advancing the plot. And when I turned this critical lens on my own work, I found tons of plot holes where both Mewtwo and the villain character make dumb mistakes to advance the story. And I decided I really did want to redo everything from scratch in order to make all the characters feel much more competent than they were before. Granted, 
this doesn't mean you're not allowed to have your characters to make mistakes. I still allowed some characters to make some mistakes. Like, for example, Mewtwo forgetting about the escape method that Mewtwo had taught him during the prologue of Crossing of the Paths. But I made sure to root that mistake in, establish, in existing established in-character reasons so that that mistake feels understandable and not irritating. So not only did you employ the traditional methods of improving your writing, which, like you said, the actual act of writing, which, of course, <laughs> is a good way to improve, but you improved your critical thinking skills with reviewing different types of media so that you could apply that same critical thinking to your own work. Exactly. And there's certainly not going to be a one-to-one point-for-point compatibility. Like, you can't criticize a work of fiction for gameplay problems like you can a video game. But if you look at the central story of a video game and criticize that, you can still learn things for critiquing stories as a whole there, too. Yeah. I can absolutely see that. But that's such an interesting, unique method, I think, to use for improving writing. So thank you for giving us those tips and things to think about. I imagine that even with your improved writing ability, there must be still a ton of challenging parts of rewriting an entire series. What have been some of the most challenging parts of that rewrite process for you? Oh, gosh. Well, the number one struggle, aside from fighting off that inner cringe, has been fighting procrastination. That's another one of the things that I have to deal with in terms of my neurodivergence, is that it is very hard to keep myself on task and focusing on something specifically. And this dovetails in specifically to other problems. For example, I work in retail, and my job is very, very stressful. And I'm a very introverted person, so working in retail and having a lot of customer contact generates a lot of stress. And I use video games, for example, as one of the big primary ways to de-stress. So my struggle is I will come home after a long shift filled with stress. I need to cool off. And that means I'm just not going to get any writing done that day. And there are days when I have no stress and I'll still have that procrastination hanging on to me. It feels like a monkey grabbing the steering wheel inside my brain. It's hard to control. I mean, this is something I still really haven't figured out a reliable solution to myself. But I will say that a series of blog articles on the topic by Tim Urban on his blog Wait But Why have been very useful for helping me to start understanding some of the mechanics of procrastination and how to tackle it. Like, he's the one who coined the idea of personifying procrastination as this monkey inside your brain that wants instant gratification all the time, and it pulls your rational decision-making brain off of the wheel and forces you to go on a Reddit spiral or to watch YouTube videos for 10 hours instead of writing. I'll tell you if I ever actually figure out how to fully conquer it, but I'm making steps, definitely sure. Oh, it sounds like his blog articles on that subject have specific concrete tools or actions that you can take to kind of help. Is that correct? Like he kind of gives like tips and tools to use? Yeah, he he personifies a lot of different concepts in your brain into concrete ideals or characters. Like, for example, the instant gratification monkey being the urge to procrastinate. And you have the rational decision maker, which is your adult brain that knows you want to work on something. And then you have the panic monster 
which is what comes in when the deadline is about to cause you to fail and you're freaking out and the panic monster scares the monkey away. So you burn through an entire chapter at the last second. So it's full of stuff like that and comes with all these other concepts. I won't go into detail on all of them because we'd be here for another two hours, but they are very well written. And he puts in these images with MS paint drawings that are absolutely cute and charming and hilarious, and I love them. Well, his Plaque series sounds really helpful. I'm going to get that link from you when the show is over so that we can post that in the show notes for the other writers. Sure. If they feel that that would be something that might be helpful, because, you know, you, you see it and I see it all the time on Reddit. Like, you know, a lot of people struggle with that procrastination and mm -hmm. knowing that you should be working on something, but getting derailed for different valid reasons. You know, it happens to the best of us. So uh, we'll, we'll post the, the links to that in the show notes in case anybody feels like that would be super helpful for them. Now, do you have a favorite line or a scene from your fic? And this can be either from the original version or from the rewrite. Ooh, now this is a really hard question because I've had multiple points in the second edition that turned out far better than I expected because I felt really inspired lately to try and just, like you said, give a lot more mental and emotional insight into what's going on in Mewtwo's head. And I just really like writing poignant, powerful moments. But if I just had to choose just one, though, I would probably go with a specific scene rather than just one line. That would be the scene of the Arbiter's Trial in Chunk 3 of the uh, new edition. The whole scene is the epitome of me striving to depict all these different characters acting in a fully perfect, intelligent, and rational way with all of the information available to them while still coming to wildly different conclusions. Like, the Arbiter character, Quidiri, has every logical reason to be suspicious of Mewtwo, given she knows their foes are perfect shapeshifters. While Kalana and Hadara, the other two Gerudo characters that Mewtwo is friends with, they know that he has had several opportunities to betray them, and he never once took them, so logically it makes sense he wouldn't be about to betray them. But, you know, the impassioned pleas that Kalana, the character, makes in an attempt to appeal to this common sense of sisterhood among the Gerudos, I think that's some of my finest writing to date. I think I would agree with that. I really loved that scene, too, because you could tell that everybody was coming at it from a slightly different perspective. I felt like there were some of the characters, like Kalana, who were coming at it from a more emotional place, right? And then there's the Arbiter who's just kind of like, well, these are the facts, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it was so interesting to see, like you said, they're all talking about the same event and the same group of facts, but they're all kind of coming at it from very different places and very different perspectives. So that was fascinating to see how they all handled that. Thank you. I appreciate it. Of course. Now, what advice would you give to other fan fiction writers who might struggle with editing or rewriting? Because you hear a lot of people complaining about the editing process specifically, mm -hmm. which I understand like there are some writers who think that editing is super fun and they love it and all that. And then there are some who are like, oh, editing is like the worst. <laughs> you know? yep, yep, so yep. if you had to give any advice for folks on editing or rewriting, what would you say? There are a couple of ones that I can go over for this one. The first one being... If you're struggling with editing specifically, then try reading your stuff out loud to yourself. I find that this is far more effective than just quietly skimming a story with only my mind. Like, there's something about reading the text verbally that forces my brain to reprocess it in a way that points out my errors in stilted phrasing a lot more clearly. 
Also, don't be afraid to experiment with music while writing and editing. I personally find that any genre of music can be conducive to writing or editing, but for me, some genres are better for generating new ideas, and some genres are better for just sitting down and working on the writing and editing itself. Like, for me, really familiar music that I've listened to hundreds of times and music that's calm and relaxing with slightly repetitive structure is very conducive to getting writing and editing down. But your mileage may vary on this one. Some people need absolute silence, and that is perfectly valid, too. If you feel the same urge to cringe at your past self while you're older writing like I did, just try to remind yourself that that cringe is the direct proof that you're getting better. And... If you're a person who got their start as a pantser, like me, at least give a try changing things up and do a little bit of prep work. You'll be surprised at how much of a difference it can make. Like, a big part of my editing process was learning to take notes and make outlines. I used to hate taking notes as a kid, emphatically. My brain would get instantly bored with any sort of rehashing of information, including the time it took just to write my ideas down. I was also hugely overconfident in my ability to remember things. And of course, this means I forgot tons of stuff as I wrote. Turns out that actually taking the time to sit down and take notes about my ideas actually does help me to remember the things way more consistently. Who'd have thought it? Would you consider yourself less of a pantser these days then and more of a planner? Absolutely, 100%. Outlining especially has been helpful to me especially when it comes to breaking a writer's block. Like, sitting down and not knowing where to take a chapter would set me back for hours. Like, I would just go, brain, take the wheel, dump some stuff. (laughs) And then it would just go, I don't know what you want, dude. (laughs) But if I took the time to set up an outline, then it massively reduced the amount of time I spent aimlessly wondering where the hell am I going to take this chapter? And yeah, outlining can be boring. It can feel like you're just rehashing ideas you've already had. But you're not going to realize how useful it is until you're sitting down and having one of those moments of writer's block. It sounds like it at least gives you that nice starting point. Oh, God, So your brain's not wandering around Mm -hmm. in the desert for 40 years, right? Absolutely. And another thing that has really helped me out is I've started using an app called Evernote. Specifically, it's an app that is both for phones and for the desktop, and it has the most handy feature, this cloud syncing capability. So that means I can be out on the road or at work, you know, riding a passenger in the car when an idea strikes me. And normally, before I started using Evernote, I would be go, that idea is great. I should really try to remember it. And 10 minutes later, it'd be gone. Now that I have Evernote, what I will do is if I get an idea while I'm out of home, I will whip out my phone, open up the app on the phone, type it in on my phone screen, and it will sync the changes over to my desktop. And when I come home to write, there's all the ideas that I had right there, safe and sound, stored away. Oh, that's so wonderful. And I love that it has that syncing capability so that as long as you pull out your phone and force yourself to make that note, it's there for you later. Absolutely. So you don't have to forget it. Mm-hmm. Ooh, okay. All right. So we'll have to put a link to the Evernote app somewhere on the show notes as well, in case there are any writers out there who think that that might be super helpful. Because I feel like this happens to a lot of creative people. You're out doing some sort of monotonous task. 
maybe you're at work or you're running an errand or something. And that's sometimes when the best ideas like come through to your brain. And then you're like, oh, my God, I got to write this down somewhere so it doesn't get lost. So that's great. That's great advice. I love that. Like the most common example of this happening to me is when I'm trying to go to bed and go to sleep because I struggle to get to sleep. Like once I'm asleep, I stay asleep. But first falling asleep, my brain, it fights that shit. And one of the things my brain loves to do is start coming up with fic ideas when I'm trying to get to sleep. And my adult conscious brain is like, we can't get up and turn on the computer and write this down right now because then we'll be sucked in and we'll end up being up until 4 a.m. writing. As an adult, I need to rationally make the decision to stay in bed. So instead of getting up to write on the computer, I will reach over and grab my phone, open up Evernote and tap it in and then go roll over and try to sleep some more. Oh, I love that. That's a very healthy compromise, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it works, too, because then it's there when you're in that space and able to, like, devote time to it. Oh, so yeah. So you don't lose it. So. Mm -hmm. And my notes aren't the most organized. I still have pantsing problems on some of my notes. For example, like, I have one big saved idea file for each book in the trilogy. And that's where just any random idea I come up with, I will write it down in the moment when I don't have time to organize it. And the the saved idea file for Crossing of the Paths is kind of big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm sure that that's such a helpful thing to do for your stories because they are so massive in scope oh, God, that being yeah. able to go back into that file and be like, hmm, I need some inspiration here or I need you know, this or that, you can go back into that file and you can pull it out. So that's so great that you don't ever erase it or delete it. It's all there for you when you need it. I'm sure that's immensely helpful. Oh, yeah. And I love how Evernote has the ability to sort notes into notebooks. So I have a notebook specifically for Crossing of the Paths. And in there, I have notes for the outline for the story that I wrote. And then I have notes for the Gerudo language because that's one of the fun things I've really enjoyed doing is taking the Gerudo language from Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild and incorporating that into the fic and then adding more words to it of my own. So I just have a note specifically for translations of Gerudo words. And then I have the general ideal note, which is just completely mishmash mess. <laughs> I wanted to ask you something that I didn't put on this list of questions here, but I noticed when I was reading Crossing of the Paths on AO3 that there are some artwork pieces that yes. were included in those chapters. Did you do those artwork pieces or are they fan arts that were given to you by fans of the story? Where did those come from? Oh, they are all by either fans or custom commissions. Like, I am not a skilled artist. Oh, God. You don't want to see my stick figures from high school. They are terrible. <laughs> But, I can relate to that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Several of them are just fan art that some fans of the first edition just did spontaneously for me as gifts. And then some of them, I just have artist friends and I'm like, I'll give you money if you draw my stories. And they're like, hell yeah, give me that money. I'll write you. I'll draw your stuff. <laughs> they were so interesting. I loved the one. I think there's one in there with Kalana. And that was super interesting because not being very familiar with Legend of Zelda myself, I try to picture what I think she looks like and everything. And I was pretty close, but it was really neat seeing her in this drawing. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's so cool. And then I know you've got some art in there, like there's some Mewtwo's and there's some other stuff in there. And I just thought that was so cool. Actually, it's funny because when I was I was Googling your story when you first reached out to me 
because I was just curious. And I ended up finding fan art of your story on DeviantArt. And I have no idea if the person who did that fan art on DeviantArt is the same person that did these arts that are in the rewrite version. <laughs> I don't know. But do you know anything about that DeviantArt? Uh, it, there are a couple of pieces, actually. D which one did you find? Was it the one with Mewtwo holding the Master Sword? I believe so, because I, they're sitting around this fire, and there's a sword in there. Oh, that and Mewtwo one. is with, I believe it's Kalana. That's yeah, with yeah. Him. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And the caption just said something like, this is fan art I made for my friend who's writing this cool story. And I thought, who is this friend? Like, the, you know, drew this fan art. It was really good. I liked it. <laughs> yeah, that one. I forget the name of the artist himself, but my friend named Lucas actually paid the artist to draw that for me as a gift. That's so nice. How cool is that? Yeah. Lucas is one of my very first fans who started following me during the first edition and has been sticking with me ever since. And I consider him one of my good friends, actually. That's wonderful. Isn't that so cool? Yeah, that it really fan is. fiction and the community that we have around fan fiction, it, you know, sometimes it leads to friends, right? Mm-hmm. That's I mean, so cool. I, I am very introverted, and my engagement with the fandom community at large is very narrow, just because, you know, I'm neurodivergent, I have social anxiety issues, I'm introverted, I don't like talking to people, and I need to relax afterwards. So I don't usually spend that much time engaging with fandom in general, but the fic that I posted, this Traveler's Trilogy, has drawn people to me. And while I haven't really stayed connected to the majority of them, I have stayed connected to some of them, and some of them are absolutely awesome people that I really value in my life. I love that. I love hearing that because I feel like fan fiction does have that capacity to bring people together from all over the world. It's this global phenomenon that so many people are participating in. And sometimes, yeah, we meet people that become our dear friends that we wouldn't really have been able to meet or get to know without the connection that fan fiction provides. Absolutely. Aside from that reason of why fan fiction is so awesome, in your opinion, what else makes fan fiction unique and special? What do you love the most about fan fiction as a concept? In addition to the fact that fan fiction is an escape for me in a lot of contexts, you know, that's something you could say is universal for any sort of fiction. It's an escape from, you know, the terrible things in life, and it's an escape from mundanity. But fan fiction is also special for me because it's an affirmation that my own desires to create something using something else are still valid. Like, society loves pressuring people into monetizing their hobbies. Everyone's heard the saying, if you're good at something, never do it for free. But to be entirely honest, my neurodivergence causes me to feel a lot of pressure and stress around any task that acts as my primary source of income, even if those tasks are fun. And while I would love to have a side gig writing fiction for people, I think I'm very happy with keeping my primary source of income way far away from my passion for writing, and keep fanfiction as a sort of an ultimate way to write for the sake of art rather than money. I mean, it feels like that this ensures that I never feel that stress or pressure when I write it. It's like a safe and warm source of comfort for my creative mind, away from that pressure of you have to be productive and make money. 
also fan fiction is just the ultimate positive counterpoint to that phrase. There's no more originality left anymore. So what if people can't come up with purely original plots anymore? Fanfiction presents us with the potential for countless permutations of existing and remixes of existing works. I mean, just think of all the ways you could mix a crossover out of all existing pieces of media. There are billions, trillions, quadrillions of different ways to mix different fandoms. And all of them have the potential to be really amazing in the right hands of a skilled writer. I mean... We may only have a few select types of story structure, like the hero's journey, that we can write, but with millions and millions of writers writing for thousands of years with thousands of different fandoms, we'll never run out of ways to reinterpret our existing ideas in new combinations. And that's really something special about fanfiction to me. Yes, I love that you bring up the endless possibilities, especially with the crossovers. Because crossover really isn't something that happens in canon media very often. <laughs> it's cool when it does, but it doesn't happen very often. But it's something that makes fan fiction so unique because you see a lot of crossover potential in fan fiction. And you're right, like it is this amazing opportunity to have reinterpretations of the same story in a completely unique and different way. That gives us this unique perspective so that even if the plots and the elements of the story might be familiar to us because we've seen them over and over and over, just the fact that there are different nuances that are completely unique makes it completely worth it and completely amazing. And it is an act of exploration, in my opinion, right? Because we're essentially exploring the human condition, right? The human experience. And fan fiction gives us the ability to do that as a writer and a reader. I love that about fan fiction. <laughs> and I just love the idea of how fan fiction is a way to get more of something you like. I know you've personally covered this a lot of times with other authors you've had over the course of this show. I mean, I've listened to most of the episodes now. Love the podcast. Thank you. But it's just a point that I think is worth repeating because... There are canons out there that are over. They will never have new content ever again. Maybe the writer is retired or dead, or maybe they just found an endpoint that was a good endpoint for them. And for some people who connect to it so deeply and speaks to them in ways that are important, it doesn't have to be over for those people. They can come up with more content for it, and it doesn't necessarily make the original worse. I mean, even if a fanfic isn't good, it doesn't take away from the fact that the original was. And if a fanfic is good, then it can enhance the experience of absorbing the canon or extend the happiness that you get from that canon even more. Like, for me specifically, there's been some further pieces of media out there starring Mewtwo. Like, there's this movie with a Mewtwo and Genesect. I just, I didn't really like it. It wasn't that well written personally, in my opinion. And because I'm writing the story, I can decide that doesn't apply to my stories. I can just cut that out. And I don't necessarily have to just go and say, rah, 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 people who like this movie are wrong. No, they can like it all they want, but I'm not going to have it in my continuity. And it's, my story is going to be how I envision it. And I just like sharing that with other people. Yeah, no, I love all of those points. Those are amazing, amazing points. And exactly, 
I love what you said about fan fiction doesn't take away anything from the original content, right? Yeah. Even if it's bad. <laughs> if anything, it enhances our understanding of the original content in ways that maybe the original creator didn't intend. But once they put it out into the world, people are going to interpret things all kinds of different ways anyway, once yeah. it's out there in the global consciousness. So exploring that space with fan fiction is really just going to, I think, like you said, help us love that original content even more. I know that's very true in my experience. I would not be so devoted to different franchises and fandom spaces if I did not have fan fiction to flesh out the stories for me and to flesh out the characters for me in a believable, real, tangible way. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I'd probably not be nearly as close of a fan of Zelda if I hadn't read that Legend of Link Lucky 13 fic. Like that pulled me into the canon in ways that were entirely new to me and just reinforced my love of canon. Even if there's been some Zelda games out there that I personally really dislike, which I know is kind of heretical to some fans, but you can find so many different ways to interpret the original and have fun with it that just add to it without subtracting from it. And you can extend it so much. And I don't know, it's, it's magic. <laughs> I love what you said about fan fiction reinforcing the original love that you already have for the original content. And that's why, like, <laughs> help me with this, but I will never understand why the creators of original canon content would have a problem with fan fiction when, A, it's not being used for financial profit, right? And B, it is endearing all of these fans to their content and making us more in love with it, more connected to it, more devoted to it. Like, how is that bad? <laughs> right? Like, you would think that they would be all for that, being like, yeah, write the fan fiction, draw the fan art, you know, because you want these guys to be with you and stick around with you. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, like, if you want to talk about old school fanfic experiences, remembering the past, you know, while I personally didn't witness it firsthand, I certainly heard a lot of the stories about Anne Rice going after fanfic writers for her vampire novels, and that just boggles my mind. I mean, what higher flattery is there for your work that people want more of it so much that they'll make more themselves? Yes, you know, and <laughs> since we're on the topic... It's funny that you mentioned Ender's Game at the beginning of the show because I have a lot of experience with Orson Scott Card and with the works that he produced. Okay, he claims he was going off advice from his attorney. I have no way to confirm or deny that. I have no idea. But he claims, well, I was just acting off of the advice of my legal counsel, and that's why I'm totally against fan fiction, and I think it's lazy writing and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And for a long time, he wouldn't let anyone write fan fictions based off of his works. Of course, we did it anyway, mm -hmm. you know. But if he heard about it, if he found out about it, he would definitely have those taken down. And I think that it's so funny that it appears that in recent times, in the past couple of years, he may have actually changed his stance on that. Mm -hmm. Because he is quoted recently in the past couple of years as saying, I love fan fiction. It's great. It's free <laughs> advertising for me and my work. And why wouldn't I love it? And I just roll my eyes when I see that because I'm like, 
Do you not remember all those years that you were so disparaging to fan fiction writers and now you don't have a problem with it? Like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. <laughs> well, the problem with only paying attention to your legal team is that you ultimately end up only getting the perspective of a lawyer. And sometimes when all you hear is lawyers, all you see in a case is the potential to win a case, not whether you should pursue that case. Very true. So, I, you know, I don't know the backstory on that. I just know that there are rumors that he has changed his stance mm -hmm. <laughs> on fan fiction somewhat. And I think I should probably point out that Orson Scott Card writes fan fiction. He just doesn't like to admit it. So um, <laughs> I, I think it's important to also say that, that <laughs> for whatever that's worth, he also writes it himself. So anyway, <laughs> there's my little rant on, uh, on Orson Scott Card. But yes, Ender's Game Forever. Love that for the rest of my life. Now, speaking of good fix that we love, do you have any good fix that you'd like to recommend to the listeners today? Absolutely. I have three, actually. All of them are Pokemon fix that I have read lately. I don't usually read other fix very often, but, you know, after listening to your show, I was inspired to spend a little bit more time finding new ones to take up. So I spent a little time just going through AO3 and searching for Mewtwo specifically. The first one was a small one-shot. It's not very long. Very good, though. Very skillful. Called Lost Finding Found by the author Appending Fick. And it's just a simple little emotional story about the friendship between Ash, Ketchum, and Mewtwo. And it's set in the context of the Detective Pikachu movie. I love that movie, by the way. Very good. The second one I have enjoyed recently is an incomplete fic called Case File Number 1 Mewtwo by Jashin Senpai. And it's actually part of a series called Pokemon Cryptid Hunters Incorporated. It's a really cool concept, you know, treating Pokemon, specifically legendaries, as, you know, mysterious cryptids to be hunted and investigated, almost like a long-form version of those Bigfoot hunting shows on TV. Oh, uh, that's fascinating. Sadly, it left off on a cliffhanger and hasn't been updated since 2019, so... If you do oh, go read no. it, be ready for that. <laughs> so it might be one of those abandoned whips. Yeah. Still worth reading, though. I like it, especially because it characterizes various human trainers really well. The third and last one I recommend is actually another one by Appending Fick. This one is called Pity of the World, and it's an alternate universe story about Jesse and James from the anime. If you remember them, they were agents of Team Rocket, constantly pestering Ash Ketchum and trying to steal his Pikachu. The story is a what-if about what might happen if Jesse and James had actually never joined Team Rocket and had instead met Ash and tried to be positive mentor figures to him about how to be a good trainer instead. I haven't finished reading the whole thing, because it's a long one, it's almost 200,000 words, but so far I've really enjoyed what I've read. Those sound wonderful. Awesome! Thank you for those racks. We will, of course, be posting the links to those in the show notes when this episode is released. So if you are interested in checking those out, by all means, go to the show notes. You can find the links there. Those are all of the questions that I have for you today. Triple M, AJ, do you have any last words for us today? Definitely do. I want to speak as a neurodivergent person. I want to encourage other people on the spectrum to try and write more. Because I can't speak for all neurodivergent people. Like, one of the big things that my counselor has told me is, if you've met one neurodivergent person, you've still only met one, and all of them are different. But it is a common trend 
that several neurodivergent people come up with very detailed, complex universes and worlds in their brains. And they just make these inner worlds sometimes as an escape from life or sometimes as just for fun. And if there's anyone out there like that who has these inner worlds in their brain, write it. Get it out there. Like, I've been working on my Traveler's Trilogy, like Chaos Blue said, almost 20 years. It's basically my life's work. I've got this ginormous universe, multiverse, of different realms tied together with all these characters. And not a lot of people will read it, but I'm not writing it to get famous. I'm not writing it for comments, or even though comments are nice. I'm writing it because I want to share that world with everyone. I want to get it out there. Even if it doesn't connect with a lot of people, it's worth sharing with the people who it does connect with. Even if it only connects with one or two people, it's worth it because you could make friends with those people or just improve their lives. So get out there and get your worlds out there onto the internet, onto paper, onto a document, whatever you have on hand. Even if it's hard, it's worth it. I say that as a person who's struggled with my neurodivergence. For all these years, it's worth the effort to write. Thank you so much for those beautiful words of encouragement. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. I think that there are so many of us that will be able to relate to your experiences. And I just love that you've provided us with so much positivity and encouragement today. So thank you for being here. Everybody check out his stories on AO3. Give him some love. You can find the Fanfic Maverick on the internet at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast, on Instagram at fanficmaverick, and I can also be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling. <laughs>